This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. Remember, we'll be back with you manana, bright and early. Quick turnaround, 9 a.m. for our Saturday morning extravaganza. Got some things we're trying to uh, cement, if you will, in regards to the Hall of Fame. So we hope to come through for that. Should be a uh, fun little program, as we always give you right here uh, on 98.7. Yankees right now in a little bit of a hole, thanks to Luis Severino yet again. They trail the Astros by a score of 5-2. to two. That one is in the sixth inning. Astros have a couple of men on right now and another pitching change for the Yanks as Abreu will give way to uh, Nick Ramirez. But Severino, I mean, that's the story tonight, right? He got tattooed yet again, gives up a three-run bomb in the first inning, gives uh, uh, hits Alex Bregman in the second inning to force in a run. Uh, it's just not good. Then gives up a blast to Jordan Alvarez in the fifth. So five runs and four innings for Severino. And again, he's just non-competitive. You can't, I mean, I don't know what the Yankees do at this point because their margin for error now as far as the rotation is concerned, you know, they don't have those options any longer. Now with Domingo, and it shouldn't be this way, but it's the fact. You know, Domingo Herman, him being away from the team now for the rest of the year, well, that means Severino's got to hold down that spot in the rotation. You would have thought that when Nestor comes back that maybe there'd be some discussion, but now with Herman not an option, this is what you have. You want to throw Johnny Brito up there? Is that going to be any better for you? I don't think that that's a great alternative. So the Yankees are in a tough place right now, and you're still trying to play catch-up. And tonight's game is, you know, it, it really is disheartening if it doesn't change because you came into this one, at least I did. You know, I actually felt good about where the Yankees were the last couple of nights. Those are two quality wins against two good teams. You beat Tampa, you get the opener against the Astros. Remember, you never beat the Astros, but yet you found a way to get a lead. You blew the lead. You came back last night and won the game. So good vibes, right, coming into this one tonight, and then your starting pitcher goes out there and is non-competitive. So what can you do? Um, and also you throw in the fact that Aaron Judge is not in the lineup tonight because, God forbid, he dh for a few games in a row that he couldn't do the same thing again uh, this evening. And, you know, that takes a big bat out of your lineup. One that already doesn't have Anthony Rizzo now for the, not for the distant future. I don't know how long he's going to be out dealing with those concussion effects. Not that Rizzo was swinging the bat well at all, which is what finally got the Yankees in on the fact that, hey, maybe something isn't exactly all there with this guy. There's a lot of things they got to work out, right? No other way around it. The Yankees are facing an uphill battle, but it shouldn't be because you're only a couple of games out of playoff contention right now. So barring a collapse, this team is going to go into the month of September still with a little bit of a pulse here. And maybe it's not a great position to be in, but that's the reality that's facing this club right now. Mets, on the other hand, I you know, what more can you say? They're losing tonight in Baltimore. It's, hey, how about that? The Mets are also losing 5-2, to two, just like the Yankees are. <laughs> hey, how about that? It's like the Spider-Man meme. They're pointing at each other. They look exactly alike. But Mets are not good. The Mets are playing for, well, at the earliest 2024, and we don't know how realistic an option that's going to be. But, they, I mean, if it, the last few days in Kansas City, getting swept by the Royals, who might be the worst team in baseball, that tells you all you need to know about what you could possibly expect from this team the rest of the season. And you want to say that maybe there was a little bit of a hangover in that Kansas City series, given the events of what transpired at the trade deadline and over the weekend that, you know, you take the field and you're like, geez, we've got nothing left, right? They basically sold off a lot of our valuable parts, which is true, but 
he still shouldn't get swept by the Kansas City Royals. And he didn't, you know, you barely got, you almost got shut out the last two games until Lindor hit that home run in the ninth inning. So it's going to be, look, I'm not going to kid you. It's going to be a tough watch. The Mets for the remainder of 2023 are going to be downright just brutal. And I hope the Mets sold a lot of advanced tickets so they at least got their money. I don't know how many people are actually going to show up to the games and sit in those seats. I mean, City Field might be a ghost town, especially when September rolls around and school starts again. Those weeknight games, forget about it. You know, if you committed a crime and you want to hide out from the authorities, City Field might be your best bet in September. That was funny, actually. Thank you. I appreciate it. Didn't even write that one either. That just came to me. So, look, that's what happens. They made a calculated decision. They weighed the pros and the cons, and I think it was the right move to make because I didn't think that the Mets team as presently constituted was going anywhere anyways. And if you're just joining us, the Mets earlier this evening sent out a letter, just like the Rangers sent out that letter a handful of years ago. They sent out a letter to their season ticket holders explaining the moves that they made over the last couple of weeks and pledging that they're still going to try to win and it's a first-class organization and the future is bright and the whole nine yards. Now you got to go out there and actually do it, right? you got to go out there and actually do it. And I even realized in the Met game tonight, how about this? Remember our old pal James McCann who had a couple of seasons as the Met catcher? It didn't really go that well. It actually didn't go well at all, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, yeah. James McCann, coming coming into tonight's game, James McCann had 10 RBIs for the Baltimore Orioles this season. Tonight he's got four of the Orioles' five runs driven in to help the O's with a 5-2 lead. What the F? The Mets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So David Peterson got the start tonight. He lasted three innings, and then it's been basically like a revolving door of relief pitchers, guys that you never even heard of, by the way, some of these guys. I saw that they picked up another guy from the Dodgers. Dodgers DFA'd somebody, and the Mets, like, picked him up off waivers because they just need bodies, right? At this point, the Mets just need bodies just to be able to pitch. Doesn't matter if they're any good. They just literally – you know what the Mets need? They, they, they need social security numbers. That's what they need. They're just numbers. They're not names. They're numbers. We need warm bodies out there to be able to finish this season. So you really have to be a diehard of all diehards to stick with this team for the remainder of the season. It is going to be ugly. And poor Buck Showalter, who, look, by and large, Buck's had a great career, right? He hasn't won a World Series, but he's had a really, really good career. He's won manager of the year how many times over? Last year was a very good season for them. They went 101 games. This season, you know, didn't work out. But now Buck's got to go back to Baltimore, which was his previous stop as a manager. And things kind of bottomed out in Baltimore a little bit like they bottomed out this year with the Mets. To where, you know, guys got old, guys got injured. They decided to start to blow things up a little bit. And then the Orioles went into their tank mode. Mets aren't going to tank for the next number of years, just like the Orioles are. But it's funny how Buck has to go back, almost facing similar circumstances. And having, you know, you, you know, the place you used to work, the place you used to be, you never want to go in as if, you know, you're having struggles and things aren't going to change for you. Anyway, let's get some phones. 800-919-3776. Dave in the car, up next, 9870 ESPN. David, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Look, you know, we kind of see how the Yankees have been constructed, constructed over the last 10 years. and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people would kill to have a team that's always in the postseason. But 
I think now more than ever for the with respect to Cashman being really put under the scope, we know that Boone is the father of all yes men. Okay, then you have the owners. I think now is a perfect time really for Boone to be looked at as the person who needs to be removed and here's why. When you start talking about players' health mentally and physically, and you look at what happened with Jermaine the pitcher, him having this outburst in the drinking, that's not something that pops up overnight in the clubhouse. That's something that's been lingering and then it came to a head. And when you look at Rizzo, the Rizzo situation really smacks of a little bit of the CTE in the NFL issue years ago where you kind of know something was going on, and then when the hard evidence came out, it was like, wow, they've been really destroying these guys. You can't tell me that a guy like Rizzo, with all the medical staff they have, high-level stuff, that somebody didn't know anything. And just for those two players alone, I'm surprised baseball isn't going to launch an investigation with Rizzo because when you start talking about a player's health and, it, and allowed to continue and continue, it's, it's got to rest with somebody. Anyway, let me know what you think. Thanks. Dave, I, I appreciate the call, but I think that it's apples and oranges, the comparison between the two players. The Herman situation has nothing to do with Rizzo. Okay? Remember, Herman was a guy, and, and, and let's not forget, it wasn't that long ago. When Herman threw that perfect game in Oakland, okay, everybody pointed out how great a night it was for him, best game he's ever going to pitch in his life, and blah, 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 blah. But you also, in telling that story, had to acknowledge his missteps from the past which included an 80-game suspension for domestic violence, and that was very serious by nature. Okay, now if you ask me, there's some organizations out there that as soon as Herman was hit with that suspension, they would have kicked him to the curb. They wouldn't have given him a second chance. They might have felt like the Yankees had every right to sit there and say, you know what, maybe it's best if this guy gets a change of scenery for himself and for the organization. We don't condone that type of behavior. Maybe it's best if he continues his big league career in another uniform and in another organization. They elected not to do that. They brought him back, pitched well last year, right? And that was one of the reasons why you talk about somebody like that still sticking around and one of the reasons why, you know, he did get chances. Because you're talking about something, not last year, excuse me, you know, before everything happened with the suspensions and whatnot, the guy was an 18-game winner, which was also part of the reason why they maybe decided to keep him around because he was still young enough to where they thought, hey, we could tap into that ability. Because you know it. You could be a cynic or not. In sports, if you could perform, if you can help them win, if you can get the job done, that's good enough. And they're going to overlook some of these other things, whether it's about your character, your person, your record, whatever it is. You know, and you'd have to ask the Yankees as to why they elected to keep him around. But nevertheless, now he got into some more problems and He's going to have to get himself straightened out. I don't know what Domingo Herman's future is with the Yankees. All right? But maybe it is best. You know, now with this happening, maybe it is best for him to have a change of scenery. Just to be able to restart his life, restart his career someplace else, someplace else other than New York. But to say that the way the Domingo Herman situation played itself out compared to Anthony Rizzo and the issues with the post-concussion syndrome and how that was handled, I don't think they're related to one another. I mean, there's also some theories that are thrown around, and I don't necessarily subscribe to these, by the way. But there's some people that think, well, the Yankees knew all along that something wasn't right with Anthony Rizzo, and that the only reason they elected not to get him checked out or get him the care that he needs is because 
their lineup was pretty decrepit without Aaron Judge, and they needed Anthony Rizzo's bat in the lineup to be able to keep that offense producing while Judge was going to be out. Because remember, the Judge injury took place, what, a week after the Anthony Rizzo play happened against the Padres? It was the next weekend, as a matter of fact. I don't subscribe to that. Like I said, I'm not buying it. But there are those theorists out there. You know that. 800-919-3776. That is the telephone number. We roll till 10 o'clock. More of your calls. We'll get into some Hall of Fame talk as well. Grassa, 98.7 ESPN. Yeah! Go Mets! This is the Dan Grassa Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs> So we got the Hall of Fame festivities tomorrow in Canton, Ohio. Joe Klecko, Darrell Rivas going in among the class of 2023. So big Jet weekend, right? They played the game last night, but to me the highlight is actually tomorrow. You know, the game was just, well, you know, whatever. It, it had to be done. There were two teams there. They put the lights on for a while, and they had to play the game. But, you know, the, 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 all the pomp and circumstance. Like, for example, I'm a little unsure as to why you know, tonight they do the, the gold jacket ceremony in Canton, Ohio. It's just like little auditorium. They pack it up. There's NFL legends all in the place, and that's where they call up each guy, and they present him officially with his gold jacket and put it on him, and everybody cheers and the whole nine yards. It's not on the NFL Network. Normally they show that, the, the gold jacket thing. I'm surprised that it's not on. You know, you'd like to be able to see that stuff, but neither here nor there. Anyway, you know, a, a long overdue a mission there for Joe Klecko, and it's good to see the wrong being righted. You know, even though it took a lot longer maybe than it should have, and look, there's a lot of reasons as to why. It's an inexact science. All these Hall of Fames are extremely, extremely subjective as to why some guys get in over other guys and, and, and so on and so forth. But, look, he was a dominant player. You know, when he was at his best, he was a dominant player. You know, the only guy in the defensive line to make the Pro Bowl at all three different positions on that D-line. Defensive end, nose tackle, defensive tackle. And, you know, back when Joe Klecko played, remember, the pro, the pro Bowl was actually like a big deal. Pro Bowl now is a freaking joke. I mean, I don't even know if they still have it. But, like, back then, it, the Pro Bowl meant something. It really and truly did. And if you talk to all the contemporaries and the guys that, you know, played against Joe Klecko, you know, the other old offensive linemen who were on the Hall of Fame and, you know, guys have gone on record. Anthony Munoz, you know, the old tackle from the Bengals. John Hanna, the old Patriot. These guys were, you know, as as good as it gets, the best to ever play at their positions. And they all said that playing Joe Klecko was the biggest pain in the you-know-what that they had to face each and every time that they lined up against them. So if those are the testimonials coming from those guys, why the hell did it take so long? I know that the Jets never won, and, you know, they didn't have a lot of those shining moments and so on and so forth, but... That still shouldn't hide the fact that the guy was among the all-time best at his position, right? And as a matter of fact, you know, unfortunately, some of the guys that are in that room voting maybe didn't get a chance to see a guy like Joe Klecko play as much as they saw other players. Because remember, this was bef Joe Klecko played before there was direct TV and before there was the Sunday ticket and before you can have every game at your disposal. You know, and how many times were the New York Jets back then on national TV and in prime time? Not a hell of a lot, right? So what you do is you sit in the room, and when they make the presentation, you, well, you'll go by what? You go by stats. You go by the stats. And that's all you look at. And you say, oh, well, this, but, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know. No Super Bowls, uh, sacks. Uh, 
The other thing, too, is remember, sacks did not become an official statistic until 1982. Klecko had 20 sacks alone in 1981 before it became an official stat. So think about that. You know, but finally, finally, it's good that he's uh, still here and in good shape. And it should be a great day for him tomorrow. And our pal Marty Lyons, of course, is going to be his presenter for the Hall of Fame tomorrow. So I know that that means a lot to Marty uh, to be able to, you know, be a part of the ceremony as well. I know Buttle went out there today, as a matter of fact, on very little sleep, hopped on the uh, aircraft and flew out there. So a lot of uh, Joe's former teammates and everything are going to be out there for the ceremony. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of Darrell Rivas' former mates are going to be there too. And, you know, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He did not have to wait any uh, anywhere near as long as Joe Klecko had to do. And, look, it wasn't all that long ago. Where I'm sure you remember Darrell Rivas and how good and dominant a player he was, especially for those Rex Ryan Jets teams. And, and it's funny, too, because I'll never forget, Rivas was a Jet for two years before Rex Ryan took over as the head coach. And that first year, his rookie year in 07, they were bad. Um, and then in 2008, you know, they had that winning season with Eric Mangini and Brett Favre, but they kind of crashed and burned at the end, and Mangini got fired. But, you know, Rivas was a good player, right? I mean, he was he was somebody that was, you know, you started to notice and say, okay, that this is a guy that I think we could, we could build with a little bit. And I'll never forget Rex Ryan in his opening press conference when he was introduced as the head coach. One of the things he said that day was, you know, just not really knowing a lot about Rex, the person, and maybe how he was going to deal with the media. And he said those things like, you know, I'm not going to kiss Bill Belichick's rings and the Jets are coming and you take a swing at one of ours, we'll take a swing at two of yours, all that bravado type talk. And one of the other things that he mentioned that day when, when talking about the roster and the guys on this team, he mentioned Darrell Rivas and he said, we've got the best cornerback in the league in Darrell Rivas. And I remember then I was like, I did a double take. I was like, okay. So this is a coach who's coming from outside the organization, and he thinks Revis is that good to where he calls him the best cornerback in the league. And remember, Revis wasn't an all-pro in those first two years yet. But then once Rex Ryan got a hold of him and put him in that defense and saw what Darrell Revis was able to do and to essentially lock down the, team's, the opposing team's best receiver and essentially just have one side of the field blanketed to where Rex can roll the coverage all the way to the other side of the field. It made things a heck of a lot easier for a defensive coach. And you really started to see Revis take off once Rex got there in, in 09 and in 2010 when he had, you know, tremendous seasons. And in 2009, you know, he should have won Defensive Player of the Year. He should have. You know, they gave it to Charles Woodson in Green Bay, and, and, and Revis was the runner-up because, you know, Woodson had more interceptions and so on and so forth. And, and, and to this day, and I even saw something talked about in the offseason. That was like the, the back and forth that Asante Samuel got into with Revis and all those things, right? Like, you know, whatever Asante Samuel's up to these days. And, you know, bringing up the fact about interceptions. and intercep Interceptions are one of the most misleading stats in, in not just football, in all the sports. Okay, first of all, you're not going to be able to intercept the pass if nobody's throwing the ball your way, right? I mean, it, it, it's humanly impossible. Because if you're going to do that good of a job locking down a wide receiver and I'm the quarterback and I don't see my guy is open, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to target the other inferior quarterbacks on the team and to where I might have an open receiver. So how are you going to be able to intercept passes if the ball's not coming your way? That's number one. Number two, there have been so many guys over the years in the NFL who end up getting these gaudy interception numbers, but yet would get burned routinely the other times. 
You know, the Jets had a guy like that once upon a time. Remember the corner, Otis Smith, back in the day in the 90s? Otis Smith was a guy who had maybe like, he had, you know, when the Jets were terrible under Kotite for those couple of years. Like, Otis Smith had like five, six interception seasons. He even had like a couple of pick sixes or whatever. But meantime, Otis Smith would get burned like it was going out of style. And the teams would target him all the time. That's why he ended up with all those interceptions. That eventually a quarterback is going to make a mistake and throw one right to you. You know, you're not playing all pros each and every week. So that is one of the biggest misconceptions when you're talking about how good a corner is, how many interceptions he gets. Darrell Rivas was a dude who was technically sound. He could lock down the best receiver. He wasn't afraid to be physical. He could help out in the run game. He really was the total package. And... You know, unfortunately, he was never the same as a Jet after he had that knee injury in 2012. And he went down early in that season in Miami, and then the following year he got traded to Tampa Bay, and then the year after that he ended up with the Patriots of all teams and ended up winning a Super Bowl. The one damn Super Bowl he wins is with the Patriots, I get it. And then he came back in 2015, and, you know, he was an All-Pro in 2014 with the Patriots, so he was still playing at a high level, and that's why the Jets threw all that money at him in 2015. He was good for about you know, three quarters of that season, and then that final month, he was like a shell of himself, including that final game in Buffalo where Sammy Watkins, you know, basically took him to school and contributed to the Jets losing that game and missing out on the playoffs altogether that year in 2015. But still, when he was at his best, when he was at his peak, you know, there were very few that have played this game that were really the complete package that Darrell Rivas was at the cornerback position. So... You know, it's good for the Jets. I'll tell you, there have been a few Jets over the last five years. Think about it. You got Revis, Klecko, the late Winston Hill, Kevin Mawai. I'm trying to think if I'm missing another one. You know, guys that played a good part of their careers with the Jets who ended up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And that's really good to see. You know, better late than never. And who knows? You know, you might have some guys on this current version of the club. Certainly Aaron Rodgers is going to be a Hall of Famer, even though he's going to be remembered as a Packer, of course. But... You know, you might have some of these other youngsters. We'll see how they fare throughout their careers. You know, whether it's Quinn and Williams or Sauce Gardner, who who knows? You know, still a lot of football to be played. But certainly an exciting time for the organization. And uh, tomorrow should be a fun day in Canton, Ohio. I will be enjoying it from my couch. I know that some of my colleagues are taking shots at me that I'm not there. But you know what? I'm not losing any sleep over it. Trust me. 800-919-3776. That is the telephone number. Grasso Show till the top right here on 98.7 ESPN. Let's make sure we play like the New York Jets and not some slack team. Do we understand what the I want to see tomorrow? Let's go to eat a damn snack. This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. We'll be back with you early tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. to kick off your Saturday. Let's say hi to Wes in Jersey up next here on 98.7. Hello, Wes. Oh, good evening, Dan. How you? Good evening, company. How you doing tonight? Wes, I'm, you know what? I'm doing great, buddy. You, you tell me. What's going on on this fine Friday for you? Yeah, I mean, you were talking about uh, the Giants. I'm not a Giants or a Jets fan, but uh, I was just curious who – you think is going to be the starting uh, wide receivers coming out of Giants camp, especially given Jalen Hill seems to be stepping up, and that's going to kind of slot the guys maybe where they belong a little more in the 2-3 range. So I'm curious who you think is going to come out on top uh, as the starting wide receivers for the Giants. I think Darius Slayton for sure is going to be one of them. 
okay, because after all, he was their guy last year. So I think Darius Slayton will be one. Um, and I, I don't know if Jalen Hyatt will be ready for starting duties right out of the shoot in week number one, but ultimately I could certainly see him sliding his way into that. Um, to be safe, because they went out and got him, Maybe Paris Campbell, the free agent that they signed from the Colts, I could see him maybe as opening up as your week one like slot-wide receiver. You still have Hodgins. I don't know um, where Sterling Shepard is yet on the comeback trail with the knee. But, uh, you know, safe bet, I'll say Slayton, Paris Campbell. <sighs> you know what I mean? Maybe Hodgins for week one. How about that? Oh, we lost Wes. But again, that's subject to change, and it probably will change. Because as we said, Sterling Shepard's coming back from yet another knee injury. Wandale Robinson, we really don't know what we have from him yet because he played sparingly in his rookie season last year. you got to let him get some reps. Hyatt is just a rookie. Do they want to entrust him with all that so soon in his career? And these other guys, you know, they're going to have to fight for roster spots. Remember, Cole Beasley was a guy that they just signed a couple of weeks ago. He's a guy who had success in Buffalo with Dayball. But Cole Beasley is a slot receiver. Jamison Crowder is here. You know, he's a veteran. He was a you know fairly good Jet for a couple of years on a couple of bad Jet teams, but Crowder is a slot receiver. Giants have a lot of those small, shifty slot receivers. They don't have too many outside, true outside wide receivers, guys that can go and just win battles one-on-one, -on -one, which is what they're hoping that Hyatt can become for them. Because as I said earlier, he wasn't that guy in college. In college, he played in the slot, but... Playing wide receiver in college is different than playing in the NFL. Let's say hi to Robert in Manhattan. He is up next here on 98.7. Hello, Robert. How are you? Hey, Dan. How are you? You know, Dan, one of the reasons I love you and listening to you is you're educational, you're funny, you're informative, and you're very intuitive. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. That's, a, that, lot, that's a lot of things to hold up to, though, there, Rob. Boy, yes, well, you are. You are. Me. Take my word for it. Anyway. Okay. You said, or not you, but this letter that uh, who somebody sent to the Mets. Steve, Co uh, Steve Cohen in the Mets sent that to oh, the season okay. ticket They holders. said, okay, yeah. we're going to compete in 2024. All right, yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. Yes. Realistically, in your wildest dreams, mm -hmm. you think the Mets can in any way remotely compete with the Atlanta Braves? Now, wait a minute. Before you answer me, I'm going to get Shakespearean on you. Okay. If you've ever seen the play Hamlet in Act 1, Hamlet, musing upon the death and the murder of his father by Claudius. He compares, and this is a great, great uh, uh, this, uh, metaphor. He compares Claudius to his father as to a satyr, which is like a half boy, half goat with hooves, to Hyperion. That's heavy stuff. I mean, you really think the Mets and the Braves, Dan, don't believe in the same quadrant. They, 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 what are the Braves? Thirty games ahead of the Mets now, and you well, think no, next there, year they're going to? They're going to. But compete? Rob, I think you're taking it a little too literally. I, when you say when you say compete for 2024, do I think the Mets are going to challenge the Braves? Of course not. Not not in a million years. But to say that they can't compete and at least stay in the wild card race late into the summer, maybe into September. Oh, I don't yeah, think well, I was going to have to risk. say, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, all right. Uh, you know, get, well, that's what they know, mean. Get, Remember, they didn't, say, they didn't say win a division. They said compete, which means meaningful games going into the month of September, which means, you know what, right now, the Mets aren't worth watching for the rest of the year. They don't want to <laughs> have one of those seasons again next year. By the way, can we – but is there a mercy rule in baseball? No, I guess there isn't. I no. want two quick other points. 
How do you think the Mets fan feels right now? They get rid of Scherzer. Now, I know Scherzer wasn't good with the Mets, but what does he do last night? He goes out and wins a game for Texas. One other point, I want to get to football. Oh, I can't wait for that Thursday. Kansas, Detroit and Kansas City, that's going to be an interesting game. We'll see how, you know, the, the Chiefs are the Chiefs, and we'll see if Detroit is this team that everybody says could challenge for the Super Bowl. Let me ask you a question. The Giants, as good as they may or may not be, you still think, and I think, unless you can prove to me otherwise, that the NFC Championship is going to go either through San Francisco or Philadelphia, yay or nay. Robert, thanks for the phone call. And I feel like I just went in for concussion protocol testing because he threw about 700 things at me in about 38 seconds. And it's like, all right, now I'm so remember, confused right now. Yeah, try to spit back everything that he just said. I, I got to write this down. We got Hamlet. We got the Mets. Um... We've got Scherzer. We've got the Lions. What was the last one? Was it something with the uh, the NFC? Was it San Francisco, Philadelphia? Something about the NFC Championship game, I believe. NFC Championship, right. But nothing about the Giants, though, right? Or was there? The, Did you think about the Giants? Maybe Giants way, wide that, receiver. Anyway, there was yeah, a lot. Yeah, we, we, we did a lot in the Giants wide receivers. All right, the Hamlet stuff, I felt like I was back in school. I'm not going to address that one. I had to do enough of Hamlet back in English, uh, in Brit Lit. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we talked about the Mets. We'll see. The, look, I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll give you a bold take right now. Mets aren't going to be as bad next year as they are this year. How about that? And I know that they're going to tank the rest of the way so the, the record could get really ugly. But the Mets aren't going to be as bad next year as, as they were this year. And they might even be a more fun team to watch because this year wasn't fun. Because you couldn't enjoy it if you were a Mets fan because the only pleasure you could get from them is when they were winning and doing what they're supposed to do on a consistent basis, which is what they didn't do. When you have a $350 million payroll, you have to almost go out there and win like every game. Right? And they didn't do that. So it wasn't fun this year. It was just one disappointment after another. Okay, that's number two. Scherzer... I reserve my judgment on Scherzer and what he's going to be able to do for Texas. And, and you can call me back in October or September, October, whatever. But I'm willing to push my chips to the middle of the table that Scherzer is not going to be the end-all, be-all what the Texas Rangers need him to be. All right, yesterday he gave up three runs in the first inning against the White Sox. And the White Sox stink. All right? And he won a game yesterday because Texas's offense got back into that game for him and got him off the hook. Now, look, Scherzer settled down after the first inning. I watched the game. All right? He struck out nine guys. So he pitched okay, but it was the White Sox. They stink. Scherzer, his track record over the last couple of years, and this is why I had no problem the Mets trading him and why I was shocked that there was another team that actually took him off the Mets' hands. Yes, money had to do something about it. Because Scherzer wore down as a Dodger at the end of 2021. He wore down as a Met at the end of 2022. He's now a year older. What do you think is going to happen this year? He already had time on the injured list, right? The stuff is not as crisp and as lethal as it used to be if you've watched Max Scherzer his whole career. The reason the Texas Rangers went all in to get Max Scherzer is because not only, and they got Jordan Montgomery too, the former Yankee from the Cardinals, they had to go get two starting pitchers because the owner of the Texas Rangers spent a boatload of money on this team. He wants to win. He brought Bruce Bochy, a Hall of Fame manager out of retirement, to manage this club. They gave Jacob DeGrom $185 million. He had Tommy John surgery. He's not in the mix. Nathan Avaldi, who they gave close to $100 million to in the offseason and who was an all-star this year, he's on the shelf right now with forearm issues. Whenever you hear forearm and pitcher, that does not bode well. 
He shut down minimum for another three, four weeks. So they had to go out and get two pitchers just to be able to hold off the Houston Astros. Will they be able to do it? We shall see. But I don't think Scherzer is going to be that big of a difference maker for them. The Lions, they actually sold out of their season ticket allotment for the first time in, like, forever. The first time since they moved into Ford Field, which is going back, like, 20 years. So good for the Lions. Let's see what they can do for an encore this year. But they still got a long way to go. San Francisco, Philadelphia, yes, those are the two best teams in the NFC right now going into the season. It would not shock me if they're playing for the NFC Championship again. But probably won't be the case because the NFL prides itself on parity. I think I got that all. I think I answered every one of Robert's just meanderings in that one phone call. There you go. Job well done. 800-919-3776. We'll towel off. We'll come back. Grass the show till the top. Right here on 98.7 ESPN. You're educational. You're funny. You're informative. And you're very intuitive. 